News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We're talking about Chernobyl, because there's something about Chernobyl that just continues to fascinate, isn't there? And the scientists are always studying the impact of that nuclear meltdown, especially now that it has been, what, 35 years since it happened. And they study everything, including dogs. Yes, dogs. There's a new article in the journal Science Advances that focused on 302 free-roaming dogs living in and around this disaster site. So what can we learn from them? Well, Dr. Tim Musso is with us, a professor of biological sciences at the University of South Carolina. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. So what good is morning, so in- well, good morning, <laughs> South Carolina. Uh, what is so interesting about these dogs? Well, you know, the, the, the main interest for us is that these uh, dogs have been living there uh, pretty much independently for, you know, since the time of the accident. These, these dogs are actually the descendants of the pets that were uh, left behind when the inhabitants were forced to evacuate at the time of the accident. And so they've been evolving and, and adapting to this, this environment that's kind of unique in, in many ways. And, and because they're dogs... You know, they, 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 they go where people go. And so they're a fantastic model for looking at uh, what the effects of radioactive contamination might be for not just the, the dogs and the other animals in the areas, but, but also the people who work and live in that region. So what can we learn from their DNA? What have you been able to tell? Well, at the moment, you know, this is, this is the first step of, of a longer-term project. Uh, and what we've, what we've established is that the, the animals really are living as a kind of a unique little population. There's two, two populations, actually, one right around the power plant and another in the little town that's about 15 kilometers south of there called Chernobyl City. And uh, they've been living independently, and, and now we've characterized their genetic ancestry. We can start to investigate with much finer detail how the DNA has changed in response to, you know, 35 generations of, of life in this, this really stressful environment. Has their DNA changed? Well, that's a really good question. And, uh, you know, we have some hints that there have been some, some changes, but we, at this point we have not published those results, so we can't really talk about them. But let me just say that it's incredibly intriguing and, it, and, and very promising in terms of what we might find in the oh. future. Oh, well, that was a really good sell. Really good sell on that one. <laughs> so I guess, like, what was the theory? So did you think that they would be essentially the same after 35 years? Was that what you were trying to figure out? Well, you know, our, our first suspicion was that there'd been immigration into the zone uh, from, you know, the workers and, and other folks in the area uh, that would have led to, a, you know, a mixing of the population with constant immigration. But that's, that's not what we found. We found that they, they've actually been living relatively isolated with little input from other sources, other populations. And so this is what provides, you know, just such an incredible tool to, to look at how that population has changed. Uh, you know, because they, because they haven't had all of this gene flow from other areas, it means that what we see in these dogs now really reflects how they've responded uh, evolutionarily over these past 36 years or so. Dr. Musso, how rare is this in terms for research purposes to find a population like this? It's incredibly rare. Uh, you know, this, this, this area is, is, you know, very challenging to work in. Uh, we've also worked in Fukushima uh, and, 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 you know, it's just really, really difficult to, to, to muster the resources and the people to, 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 to tackle this kind of problem. And, and also, it's incredibly rare to find uh, 
a large population of, of mammals who are so approachable and, and easy to work with. And, uh, you know, I should mention that the main mission was actually the care and well-being of these animals and to help control the spread of disease and reduce the population size so that the survivors would have a better life. Uh, this was done in collaboration with uh, an animal welfare group called CFF. And uh, uh, the, the research part of it was sort of, uh, you know, serendipitous. It, it kind of layered on top of the, the animal welfare program. Is it surprising, though, that you could get this group of mammals that has survived in these really, what we thought was pretty hostile conditions 35 years ago? Incredibly surprising. And, and in fact, I think, you know, for, for most of the, the past three decades, they they were just sort of kind of hanging on, you know, living off the handouts from the workers at the plant and, and, and some of the inhabitants of the Chernobyl city. But but over the past decade, the influx of tourists, uh, you know, there were 110,000 tourists to the Chernobyl zone in 2019, and uh, as well as the thousands of workers who were brought in to build this new safe confinement structure that was put in place on top of the old reactor that had melted down. All of these people coming in uh, led to, you know, feeding of the dogs and the population exploded. And so that that really provided the opportunity to do this study. First of all, I'm still amazed when you could say Chernobyl and tourism, right, in the same sentence. (laughs) But also, so the DNA of these dogs, and are they just like other dogs? Does they have things, can you tell us that? Have things stayed relatively the same? Well, you know, so what we've been able to tell is that most of the dogs uh, in the power plant area in particular, are are the descendants of, of, of the pure breed dogs that, that people had as pets back, you know, in the in the 1980s. So a large chunk of their DNA is from German Shepherd, uh, you know, lineage and some of the other sort of uh, Eastern European breeds that were popular at the time. And, and actually, by, and because there hasn't been this immigration, we can actually look at these chunks of DNA from these what were pure breeds at the time and how those, those chunks have actually changed and the, the individual base pairs within those pieces. So it gives us incredible power to investigate how the DNA has responded and, and changed and whether or not there's a, you know, a signature that's unique to this radioactive environment. And that, that's one of our main objectives. This is so fascinating. I can't wait to have you back when you're able to tell us more. But Dr. Mousseau, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for the call. That's Dr. Tim Mousseau, who's a professor of biological sciences at the University of South Carolina, studying the DNA of the Chernobyl dogs. Yeah, they said these dogs survived and have been there for 35 years, and they're just kind of digging into the DNA of these dogs to find out what has changed, how has living in an active kind of radiation zone impacted them, and I can't wait to find out more about that one. This is Mornings with Simi. I quoted during the trial of Amanda's offender last year that I had wanted legal changes that were needed to better protect children and youth. And never in my deepest thoughts did I think that we could do it in British Columbia. That's Carol Todd. A lot of what we're doing right now is because of her struggle. She is the mother of Amanda Todd. And you remember, Amanda Todd took her life in 2012. She had been sexually extorted by a 44-year-old man uh, from Europe. And that trial has also been a huge, uh, hugely covered event that has shown that there is a way to make a difference. And one of the other ways is with what happened yesterday. We had the province introducing legislation to hopefully prevent 
future cases of sextortion. Because if someone takes an intimate picture of you and then posts it online, up until now, there has been shockingly little that you could actually do about it. So what will this legislation change? Well, joining us now is Nikki Sharma, the Attorney General of BC, to talk more about that. Thank you for being back with us. Yeah, nice to be back. Thanks for having me, Simi. Okay, so what will this change for people? So it adds a very important addition to the tools for people that are suffering from this type of sexualized violence, and that is a victim-driven, trauma-informed legal process that helps to make it clear that circulating or threatening intimate images without consent is not lawful in this province and helps people that are victims get orders quickly to remove that content, but also get damages afterwards for the things that they suffered from that. So how quickly can somebody do this? What we are using or proposing to use that the legislation develops is the Civil um, Resolution Tribunal, which is a really innovative form of access to justice. So a lot of the the tools in that in that tribunal are online, and really the online tools are targeted at young people. So people being able to make uh, an application to court to say that I want my image removed um, very quickly, and then a decision maker would decide it, issue an order, and then um, it would be on to the perpetrator then to take down all the images um, based on that order. Right, and even if that perpetrator is not based here in this province. That's right. We are um, we are making it illegal to distribute and circuit, circulate um, images without consent, and that means any individual that's doing that, um, we can issue orders and injunctions against them to do so. And we're working in concert with many international organizations that are taking action on this as well. Okay. And so, how would you propose then that the big tech companies are going to pay attention to this? Well, this this legislation would give the power of our legal system to issue um, orders against all social media platforms to take down the images. Um, And then we would have the tools that we have in our justice system to to issue those orders against them um, to take take down those orders. So we're doing what we can in BC to hold social media platforms to account with this legislation. Right. So, but is there, has there been discussions with them on that? Like, do they have to cooperate in other jurisdictions? Well, it's part of international efforts to hold social media platforms to account. For example, there's a there's an organization called Take It Down, which helps people um, remove their images from various platforms. There's other jurisdictions that are, that are issuing similar types of orders. And I, my hope is that these companies will look at all of the work that's happening to protect our young people who are suffering these type of contests and comply with these legal orders. And I think um, we all need to do what we can with the tools that we have to hold them to account. Right. Okay. So what steps, like how quickly can this be uh, put into place for people and will this be cumbersome? Like how will they know where to go when somebody posts a picture of them? Yeah. So we are, um, we are planning a lot of really accessible tools with this legislation. First of all, it's sitting in the house right now. My hope is that it'll pass. It'll be introduced by regulation and then the civil resolution tribunal will, will get to work launching all of the online tools to make it very accessible. We're making it so anybody that's underage or minors, if they don't want to tell their parents, if that's a barrier, they can reach out to help from another trusted adult to do so, whether it's a teacher or some other caregiver. Um, we're making it so um, you can go after things that are just even threats. So if somebody is threatening to di- distribute your image, um, you could seek an order to stop them from doing that. There also will be a publication ban unless the 
the victim doesn't want that um, to make sure that privacy is protected. We really tried to develop a process by talking to victims and people like you, like you mentioned before, Carol Todd has been real advocates for better protections for youth. And it's really aimed at making sure um, not only that perpetrators are put on notice, that not only will you be will face legal consequences, we're going to make it quicker for us to go after you for this province and or victims to go after you to stop distributing these images, but also we're, we're taking the side of victims and whatever they would like to, to see in terms of the legal process. Education is going to be the key here, though, isn't it, right? Because if you want, you need the help, then you're going to have to know that this is available to you to, in order to fight back. That's right. So we are going to be working with our education system, frontline workers, um, people that would be, you know, around young people and or, you know, the adults would come into contact with that to make sure they know that these tools will be available to them. Um, and we will have um, with this a specialized unit in the Civil Resolution Tribunal that will be focused on these types of legal actions. And why use the Civil Resolution Tribunal? Why not go for a more criminal path with this? Well, we always have the criminal path of what we heard from victims of this is that they often don't come forward um, to take advantage of the criminal laws because it's it's not a victim driven as trauma-informed process as it could be. And so um, it can be intimidating and, and you have less control over it. So the process that we're proposing in this legislation gives the victim control over how they do it. It protects them in certain ways. Um, it makes it so they're connected with support. And they know that they're, if they're, they need any other help to go through the process, we're planning on making sure they're surrounded by that support. Okay, so how quickly do we view this kind of coming into force? Uh, well, hopefully it'll pass in, in the House right now. We will go through all the processes to do that here. Um, the legislation comes into force by regulation, and then it'll be available at the Supreme Court and the Civil Resolution Tribunal is working hard to be up and running um, as soon as the regulations are in place. So we're hoping by January um, 2024, everything will be in place, but it'll be kind of a staged process. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time on that. Uh, no problem. Appreciate Thanks for that. having me. That's Nikki Sharma, Attorney General of BC, talking about the Intimate Images Protection Act. Now, this is something that is going to require a lot of education. And, you know, parents out there, you need to know about this. You need to know what is possible if something goes wrong, whether it's your child, whether it's you. People need to know what is available to them to fight back against these kinds of situations, which are increasingly all too common. I mean, I think I've heard about three of these cases that just the police told us about in the last couple of weeks, including in communities like Vanderhoof, Vanderhoof RCMP, uh, releasing a statement on a sextortion scheme going on in their community. So it happens everywhere, but people will need to know how they can fight back, and that's going to be part of this. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. How much do you know about Canada's immigration detention system? To be honest, most of us probably don't think a lot about it. And yet there are people out there fighting to reform it because of the sometimes abusive conditions that can be found there. A recent coroner's inquest looked into the death of a refugee from Somalia who died in 2015 in an Ontario provincial jail. But why was he in a maximum security prison to begin with when he was in immigration detention waiting to be deported? Well, dozens of organizations have signed a letter calling on the federal government to stop this practice. It's a letter actually endorsed by our next guest, former cabinet minister Alan Rock. Thank you for being here this morning. Good morning, Simi. Your summary was right on. 
well, well, that's good to know. That's good to know. I was doing some reading on this. Why did you feel it was so important to speak out on this issue? Because I was shocked when I read the uh, landmark report from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty uh, a couple of years ago, shocked to discover what's being done in our name at the borders by the Canadian Border Services Agency. Um, And I think Canadians, when they're told about this, share that sense of shock. It's just not right. Um, Very simply stated, when a migrant or an asylum seeker appears at the border, The uh, CBSA has wide and, uh, frankly, unfettered discretion uh, to order them detained until their status is clarified at a hearing, sometimes months or even a year or more away. Ninety percent of the time they do that on the basis of uh, what they call flight risk, that the person may not turn up at at their hearing. This is not because they're a threat to public safety. The the CBSA has the exclusive power to decide, Semi, where the person is held. It could be in a federal holding center or uh, it could be in a provincial jail. Uh, The CBSA operates without any civilian oversight in making these decisions. And... um, I should say that the federal federal government enters into agreements with the provinces for the use of provincial jails for these migrants or asylum seekers. Four provinces have backed out of those agreements now because of these appalling uh, abuses. British Columbia, I'm proud to say, is one of those four. And we're working to persuade the other provincial governments to withdraw and to persuade the prime minister to stop this practice in the federal agency. When did this practice start? Well, it began uh, certainly with the creation of the Canadian Border Services Agency uh, 20 or more years ago now. And over the years, tens of thousands of of detainees have been held, um, many, many of them in provincial jails. And as you pointed out, sometimes in solitary confinement, uh, they're held for, there's no legal limit on the time during which they can be held. Uh, over 300 have been held for more than a year in the last five years. Um, there, there's no practical recourse for them to go to court and challenge this. Uh, there have been 16 deaths in detention since uh, since this practice started. Uh, and as you mentioned, the inquest in Ontario, which concluded a couple of weeks ago, uh, recommended that the practice be ended because it's simply a terrible abuse of human rights. Don't forget, these people have not been charged with an offence. They've not been convicted of a crime. There's no basis for believing they're a threat to public safety. And yet they're held, many of them, in provincial jails, right with people who've been convicted of crime or who are awaiting trial now, uh, on, on uh, accusations of criminal conduct. Now, you spent some time as Justice Minister as well, so maybe you could let us know, what is the path for the federal government to put an end to this? Is there the ability to do that, or is the CBSA have that much independent like you know, work of their own? Well, the, uh, the Prime Minister and the Government of Canada have the authority to direct the CBSA to stop this practice. And what we're asking is that they do just that. We're asking that we no longer use jail for immigration detention. And in fact, on the subject of detaining migrants and asylum seekers more generally, we believe that the wide discretion and open criteria for CBSA to order someone detained should be limited, should be more carefully circumscribed. 
we believe there should be civilian oversight for the CBSA. It should not be off on its own exercising this remarkable authority. There are many community-based alternatives uh, to jails, to holding centers where migrants or asylum seekers uh, can be can be looked after and supported until they're hearing. We don't have to put them in jail. It, it, it's just not Canadian. Uh, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Well, thank you, Simi, and thank you for drawing this to the public's attention. It's Alan Rock, President Emeritus of the University of Ottawa, and yes, former cabinet minister, speaking out about the practice of putting uh, people who are awaiting deportation into maximum security prisons. This is, does happen in provinces across the country, although, as he pointed out, BC has uh, avowed and made a commitment to no longer do this, but it still does happen, uh, and there are many organizations raising awareness about that. This is Mornings with Simi. We are finally going to get, well, some kind of investigation into alleged foreign interference in Canadian elections. That was the subject of a pretty much last-minute press conference the Prime Minister called yesterday afternoon. But this is an issue that has been building and building over the last few weeks. Actually, some of us might say it's been building for years, because certainly the reporting has been there to outline the concerns of what has been happening. So what can we expect from this process and what has the reaction been to this? Well, Sam Cooper is with us, investigative journalist for Global News, who's been covering this for years, has written a book about it too. Sam, good morning. Good morning, Simi. What did you think of that yesterday? Well, um, honestly, my thoughts were pretty close to some of the pundits in Ottawa that, that cover this government. And uh, I, I saw a well-known columnist say this was a very clever uh, move by the, the prime minister and his office to punt the issue. And so, uh, obviously, uh, other the, the, the opposition parties have their own take. The Conservative Party has come out uh, yesterday and, and said that this is a cover-up and that they point to, this is the important issue, they point to the, the use of uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's tasking the National Security Panel of Parliamentarians. This is the panel that uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau implemented in 2017 to look at national security issues. It uh, includes MPs and senators with security clearances to look at these very sensitive documents. And you know, Simi, I have had access to very sensitive documents. Uh, That's also a key issue. This panel uh, came out with a very strong report in 2019 on this very issue, foreign interference. And we can only in the public read their very redacted report, but some of the high level uh, statements we can read say that Canada faces very serious foreign interference threats. They, they run the risk of eroding our democracy, democracy and even sovereignty, and it must be addressed. So this was... Uh, tabled in 2019. And uh, really, I think it's fair to say not not many, if any, real actions have been taken since then. It took media reporting to expose uh, this sensitive information for really uh, the Prime Minister to come out now and say it in investigation. So there's a bit of a circle going on here. The, the criticism is this panel reports exclusively to the Prime Minister, as will the so-called independent special rapporteur that will investigate. So uh, it's a fair question to ask. Uh, no matter what is found, will the public ever know you know, the, the sensitive information and will the Trudeau government respond to it with very serious actions? Uh, one more thing to add, Simi. Yep. It looks like the Prime Minister has said they will go ahead and, and look uh, very closely at a foreign agent registry. Remember, this is a gap we identified in our exclusive November 22 report that kicked off the reporting on this issue. So 
I would say that looks like a positive move, but experts say there are three or four big legal reforms that would need to follow that. Yeah, but haven't they been talking about or kind of skating around that foreign agent registry for a long time? They've been skating around it for a very long time, uh, years. Again, a bipartisan panel of parliamentarians have been pointing at the need, I believe. Uh, We don't have access to their full reports, but they've been suggesting Canada needs to follow Australia's example. This was back in 2019. No action yet. So you're exactly right. Uh, The the issues have been known. Again, it took uh, media reports exposing sensitive and very, uh, you know, damaging to Canada's reputation details for this government to now leap into some form of action. Right. Now, he also talked about relying on the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians to possibly go further with this. Well, what do we know about this committee and do they have the ability to do that? That's right. From everything I've uh, understood so far in the Prime Minister's announcement, uh, he, he was faced with the right questions. Why are you going this route when others, many others, are calling for a public inquiry? So it looks like this uh, panel of parliamentarians or the special investigator will be able to recommend whether a public inquiry is needed. And that brings us back to what some of the pundits in Ottawa are saying. Well, that takes the decision, you know, sort of away from uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and his office, puts it in the hands of others that may look independent, but at the end of the day will report back to the Prime Minister. So politically speaking, uh, the skeptics would say the Prime Minister is punting the issue. He's facing uh, so much heat right now. So many serious questions. This could take off the heat. And Simi, I'll add one thing. I I know you recognized as well that the RCMP has announced they will be conducting an investigation into the so-called leaks of sensitive information. And I've been very transparent with, with you and your listeners and everyone. I have read serious and sensitive documents because whistleblowers believe the government was doing essentially nothing after being warned for over five years about serious election interference. Right. And that information is still coming, isn't it, Sam? Like it almost feels like the floodgates have opened a bit. Well, I I would have answered yes uh, a few days ago, but I, I look, I'm tapped into the intelligence community. Obviously there's a chill that has followed the, the, the question is, do the prime minister in his office uh, want the RCMP to investigate uh, leaks that, that haven't been investigated so far. I think I can tell you, because I'm very directly connected to this, I think that people that may have been, uh, you know, talking or showing to reporters information will be on the run and hiding now. All right. So what are the next steps here, Sam? What are you going to be looking for? Well, uh, personally, uh, our our team and, and myself still have, I believe, much important information to report on. Uh, I think a, a good story is going back to the, the National Security Panel and, and asking them whether we'll get a, a very clear answer. You recommended the changes that the government's only looking at now years ago. So why should we trust that your recommendations will be followed now or followed quickly enough? Uh, I, you know, the, all, 
all, all media now can report on what the prime minister has, has, has tasked and has responded, but we continue to investigate uh, information we have and information we're still looking for on, in terms of how broad and deep this alleged threat in threat is. And Simi, I know you and your listeners will be interested. My information is, of course, there are candidates at all levels in Vancouver that are said to be part of these uh, interference networks, whether they know it or not. That comes directly from sources involved in investigations right now. So whether they know it or not, that seems uh, that I'd be so intrigued by that. Well, to to quickly give you a tip, we've reported already that in Toronto, some of these 11 candidates targeted in 2019 allegedly knew they were part of China's interference. Some didn't know. How could that be? These are very sophisticated influence operations that uh, that. you know, people, politicians need to learn more about when a foreign government or a proxy for a foreign government in a community could be, uh, you know, offering some donations that have strings attached. Hmm. Okay, so I'll, I'll be reading more, Sam, for sure. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Simi. Sam Cooper, investigative journalist for Global News. And you can read his work, of course, at globalnews.ca. He has extensively covered this story. And despite that press conference yesterday and the announcement, you know, there are still many questions about what is going to happen with this. Does it move it forward? Does it help us get to the bottom of this? And the most important thing is, does it help prevent this from happening in the future? This is Mornings with Simi. All right, when is the right to unionize not really the right to unionize? Well, maybe when you're a lawyer for the provincial government, because they have been fighting for the right to not only form a union, but the union of their own choosing for some time now. And they have been in negotiations with the government on this. And once again, those talks have broken down. So let's find out what happens now. Gareth Morley joins us now, president of the BC Government Lawyers Association. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sue. So what happened here, Gareth? What went wrong? Well, the, we, when we started the, uh, and it's always good to try to talk, uh, we agreed we wouldn't say what each of us said. So, but what I can basically tell you is that um, we are insisting that um, workers get to choose which union they have or if they want to have a union at all. And the government hasn't been willing to move off the idea that it's going to decide that which union um, government lawyers are in. Right. Why is this so important? Well, I think for everybody, it should be important. It's basically important for all workers that unions are or associations are what they've chosen because it's who represents you. You know, you pay dues to it. So um, it's it's got to be a democratic organization. And I think that should be important to anybody who works in British Columbia. And it should also be important to British Columbians because what happened here was we went to the labor board, which is the independent um, board that's supposed to decide labor law issues. We argued that under the law that the BC NDP in fact had passed, um, we were, we had shown the support necessary and we had an appropriate group of people, uh, workers necessary to uh, be a union. And the government didn't really argue to the contrary. It said that that law didn't apply. But then while we were doing that, um, it brought it to the rules right in the middle of it. And I think whatever you think of unions and whatever you think of lawyers, 
worried about a government that's willing to. Oh, sorry, Gareth, we seem to be losing you there for a second. We missed that oh, last part there. Last thing I heard you say was whatever you think of unions. Yeah, whatever you think of unions and whatever you think of lawyers, you should be worried about a government that's willing to change the rules in the middle of the game to benefit itself. Okay, so obviously this is very important to lawyers. Why, why now do you feel like this union is absolutely necessary? Well, we've actually been, uh, we've been an organization for 30 years, and for 10 of those years, we've actually been fighting to be recognized as a union. Um, and uh, the reason is because, I mean, it's some of the same things that anybody, any uh, set of workers might have. Um, it's also that without uh, a union that is our union, um, we, you know, currently we can be uh, dismissed without cause. And it's sort of a big part of what our job is, like what what um, government lawyers do is they have to say to the government, yes, this is legal. No, this isn't legal. This is within your powers. This is not within your powers. And we it's very important to us that we have the confidence to be able to do that. Um, knowing that if we're going to get in trouble with our employer, it's for something we've done, not for something we've said. And we need a, a strong association that we've chosen to back us up for that. You need some protection, you feel? Exactly, yes. Okay, so what happens now then? Well, the, we're no longer talking. Uh, our members voted 97% uh, to take job action if Bill 5 is, uh, is passed. Um, we, uh, that's, that hasn't happened yet. And, and, and it's, it sounds like it's not likely to happen this week. And then the legislature is in its session. So we're going to do everything we can to bring attention to this. You know, the labor movement's been come out against it. The uh, Canadian bar association has said, look, this is really not good for the rule of law. So we're going to try to make those arguments. We're talking to MLAs of all parties. Um, but uh, it's it's sort of up to the government what happens next because as you know, I mean, majority governments usually get legislation passed if they if they're if they're willing to go through with it. Right, but then I guess that puts the ball in your court. Then at that point, what are lawyers prepared to do? Well, as I said, we took a vote that we would take job action. We have to make sure that's within what we're legally allowed to do. Um, and uh, we probably want to keep a little bit of mystery about that uh, from the point of view of the government beyond that. Right. This, this sounds like it's been an incredibly frustrating process here, Gareth. I mean, has there, how would you categorize the discussion? Like, was it constructive? Did you feel that progress was being made? Well, I, as in order to have discussions, it is, and we agreed that what, what they said we wouldn't talk about and what we said they wouldn't talk about. So I'm not, I, I won't say what those discussions were like. I will say that we've had a very simple request. Uh, I think it started in 2012, and it was just, you know, recognize that government lawyers have an association that they've existed for 30 years now, um, and we just want the same uh, rights that any other group of employees would have if they decide to do that. And it's, it's been a very simple ask. We're not even we're not talking about money. We're not talking about really anything else other than just the recognition and that we would go to a bargaining table and, and talk about those things. Right. But 10 years, and you've even, been asking a government this for 10 years. Yeah, since. Uh, yeah, since 2012. And initially they said, um, 
that it wasn't appropriate for lawyers to bargain at all. And then it was only later they said, well, you, you have to be in this other union. So they, that, so that's, so it's been a long process and it's been a frustrating process because we're not talking about our working conditions. We're just talking about whether we can talk about our working conditions. Right. And Gareth, for people who don't understand though, like they're wondering what kind of lawyers are we talking about here? What exactly do you do for the government? Sure. So, uh, so we do, um, first of all, we would be the ones who would give advice to the government about whether what it's doing is legal or constitutional, whether it has to uh, consult with uh, First Nation, for example, or whether in expropriating somebody's property, it, it's legal or how much it would have to pay. We also represent the government in court if people challenge. Um, we also uh, draft legislation. Um, and we represent uh, the director of child services and, and the public guardian and trustee and, and provide advice to uh, various boards and commissions that, um, that uh, decide things about uh, that affect the rights of British Columbians. Right. So, these so are, you, you do the work of the government then when they, when they need a lawyer, you're the group that they call. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So do you know what, the, where, what happens now or is it just a waiting game, Gareth? Well, we're going to we're going to mobilize and we're going down to the legislature on Thursday. We're going to uh, demonstrate we're going to keep uh, the pressure up with the government. Uh, we're going to uh, we've, we've, as I said, reached out to the labor movement and to uh, the legal profession. Uh, we're going to keep doing that. And we're hoping that um, at some point, you know, they'll they'll recognize they've got to have something to talk about other than just putting us back into uh, a union we didn't choose. And if, if that happens, we're willing to start talking again. All right, Gareth, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much, Jimmy. That's Gareth Morley, president of the BC Government Lawyers Association, talking about their 10-year fight, 10 years, to form a union and a union of their choosing. Doesn't seem like that would be a problem, right, when you're talking about an NDP government, but it turns out it doesn't matter what government's in power, it has been a problem for them. This is Mornings with Simi. When you taste good gelato, you know you are onto something. And when you taste award-winning gelato, savor it. Because it is incredibly challenging to be known for the best gelato, as our next guest well knows. James Coleridge is the winner of the 2023 Gelato Festival World Masters Canadian Challenge. And he is an award-winning gelato grand master. I can tell you, it is absolutely true because I've eaten it frequently and it is amazing. Is it the ingredients? Is it the technique? What is it? Let's find out. James is with us now. Hello, James. Hi there, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm, it's uh, pretty amazing, but it's more congratulations to Vancouver for now having the best gelato in Canada. So I'm pretty thrilled about that too. Yes, you should be. So this is held once every four years. And I understand you had some, uh, some challenges even uh, competing because what happened? Well, you know, competitions are always interesting. I've, I've competed a lot around the world. I've had some success. But at the end of the day, this competition gave me a few, let's just say, bigger challenges. It's a two-day competition in Canada, represented the best of the best, 18 competitors. Uh, I get to Toronto uh, for the morning of my first day for preparation, and my luggage doesn't show up with all my powders and ingredients. So I'm like, standing at the airport going, okay, what happened? So... 
I didn't, I didn't get upset because you can't control it. So you just manage through it. And so I stayed at the airport and got a few things done for 12 hours and then showed up in my hotel room that night and just started doing prep in my hotel room and got into the final day with the judges way behind everyone else. And I just, you know, life sometimes doesn't treat you well and sometimes you get curveballs, but you just manage through it. There's no use complaining. So it, I, I managed through it and I got, I went to a store in the morning and bought a pot and a thermometer and started cooking my, oh my ingredients goodness. in the morning. Totally what I was not prepared for, but you know what? It, it was great because challenges bring out the best of you. And I, I was, challenged a lot with no this kidding. one. Now, I want to hear about your winning flavor. It was Texas pecan with an Italian soul. James, what the heck does that mean? Yummy. But more so, it, it's, <laughs> you know, I think, I think gelato, because it's super, super healthy in that, and when you're in a competition, you've got to put your personality, you've got to bring your soul to the flavor, and it's got to dance. So this flavor has so many layers to it, which I'm honored to be named best in Canada, but it has the, the, the warmth of the Texas pecan. It has the saltiness of Vancouver Island sea salt. It's infused with a maple syrup. It has a hickory smoke that's been infused into the milk as well. It has a, uh, an Italian cherry sauce with a hint of sour to it. So it has a lot of dances on the palate. Oh uh, and it also has, it also has a salted and candied pecan as a variegate, so a crunch. So it gives that mouth, a chance to crunch, bite, and then it dances from salt to sweet to sour. And I was managed to pull it off, and I'm just fortunate that the judges saw that it was the to be the best in Canada. So I'm just thrilled that it just, I got lucky, I guess. I don't know, it no, worked. you did not get lucky. Where do you get this passion from? Like, when did you realize that you were going to devote your whole life to gelato? Uh, growing up on ice cream, kind of, I got addicted to it. I kind of love it. You know, I, I, I'm, I've got a big sports background, so I'm, I'm pretty competitive. I'm pretty fit. So I always wanted to do something healthy and something that was passionate. But gelato is, is so cool because it's a science. But more so, you're an artist. You take the science of gelato and you add your passion as an artistry. And, it, and my children were born and as a single dad. I really just try to inspire my children to, to be who they want to be, to be honest and be forward and try. And, and just trying is so much value. So gelato for me was like, okay, sure. I can make gelato. Why not? I just, I'll try. And the worst, best case about this is that every time I make a mistake, which is not often, I get to eat it and my kids get to eat it. So they're pretty happy about when I go, daddy, it's not perfect. I think I need a second sample. Yeah. No kidding. Where do you get the inspiration for your flavors? Um, I, I think just listening to people, watching culinary shows around the world. I, I really am really respectful of so many brilliant chefs we have in Canada and especially in Vancouver who know how to take from farm to table and take ingredients and blend them together. We have such culinary excellence here in Vancouver and BC and Canada that I'm inspired by tasting their foods and thinking, oh, I should try that. And so, you know, I, I get my, my first inspiration is my children. My next is my, my family and then my fans. And then me, I just kind of put it all together like a jigsaw puzzle and go, hey, I should try that. So I don't know. I just, I, I love playing. I'm a playful guy. No kidding. Uh, listen, you went to Gelato University. I had no idea that was even a thing. 
You know, Gelato University is in Italy. Of course, it should be in Italy. But the worst part of Gelato University, my master's program was in chocolate and alcohol. So I had to sit in class. And I had to eat chocolate and I had oh, to drink life booze. Life is tough. Life is tough. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was, you know, and education is so important. It really is. No matter what you want to do in life, whatever you want to travel on, learning is the essence of the future because you need to learn. So Jalal University was a great foundation. I took the foundation of what I was taught and then I just made it mine. And that's the beauty of gelato is truly an art. It's like a, it's like a canvas and artwork or it's like a piano that, needs to play or art that needs to be painted it's it takes the person to add that special passion to it and, and we all do that in our own way i just happen to do it in gelato no kidding you do now james i know after listening to this a lot of people are going to think well i need to try some of his gelato i have been i stumbled across i was fortunate enough to find yours and i've been eating it for a couple of years now uh, where can people find you well, yeah, I, I'm my gelato is only made in one location now in Vancouver because I'm really focused on a lot of things that I do in gelato around the world. But it's at Casareccio in Kitsilano at 2480 Vine Street, which is a, a family business that makes amazing. fresh pasta every day. So I, I make it there. Um, I've helped a lot of places and have a big history of gelato in Vancouver, but that's the only place that I have time to make it because being a dad is number one, making gelato is number two, and for me, staying fit is number three. <laughs> <laughs> Staying fit is good. Okay, so what is the next flavor that you're working on? Can we get a sneak peek? So I'm now. So this flavor, the, the Texas pecan with an Italian soul, will be launched and available in Vancouver in a very limited, exclusive basis. I'm now challenged with a whole bunch of things in terms of taking like a Michelin star presentation of four liters into this massive concept of presenting it for customers and consumers and fans. So that's the flavor I've been playing with right now. That's the, fo- the flavor I'm going to focus on for the next little while because I now, as the uh, top gelato maker in Canada, I've now been going down to Los Angeles in sep- September to compete against 12 other gelato wow. artisans in the United States. And I need to perfect this flavor. I need to refine it. And I need to make Canada proud and I need to make Vancouver proud. So that's the flavor I'm focusing on. But with this great weather that's coming now, I'm really excited about the future of using the local berries. And I'm really excited about the, the, the harvesting of the local fruit locally now. That's, that's my big focus. But in the short term, it's more like mini eggs. It's oh, like Easter. Geez, it's like um, La- Lucky <laughs> Charms, gelato oh because of St. Patrick's Day. So <laughs> my daughter would shoot me if I didn't make those flavors. Listen, if you need another taste tester, you know where to find me. James, thank you. Thank you so much, Simi. Have a beautiful day. That's James Coleridge. James is the winner of the 2023 Gelato Festival World Masters Canadian Challenge. He is an award-winning gelato grand master. Now, if you can get yourself to Casareccio in Vancouver, you absolutely should do it ASAP and try their, not just gelato, but they have an, all sorts of amazing food there. But the gelato, oh, try James's work. You will not be disappointed.